Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we interview inspiring people from around the globe who are uplifting their community by finding solutions to our world's problems. My name is M. Barrett, and I am your host. And I hope that you'll get as inspired as I am by meeting these everyday people doing extraordinary things. For 36 years, David Beanie had a very successful career in newspapers and magazines, but at the same time, David had a big secret. It was a secret that he was hiding from everybody. His secret was that he was constantly battling with his mental health and recurring panic attacks. For more than three decades, he suffered in silence out of fear and embarrassment. But in 2016, he decided to out himself to the people in his life. He shared his truth. And when he did, he found his true purpose. And since then, he's committed to dedicating his life, working to eradicate the stigma associated to mental health. His business, Breaking the Silence, is one of the leading advisors in the UK on mental health in the workplace. David has helped many leading brands to create kinder and more compassionate cultures. It's really powerful work. And as a result, he was recognized as one of the top 101 global influencers in employee engagement in 2018 and 2019. But perhaps more importantly, he is opening up conversations around mental health in completely unprecedented ways. I absolutely loved speaking with David. He has a simple yet so effective approach to talking to companies about their cultures and how to change them. In this podcast, we talk about his work and the people he works with, and David is definitely on a mission. I think you'll hear that he's embarked me with him. You'll be able to tell that I was truly touched by his kindness and his compassion, and I have to admit that I'm a big fan. I really see how he embodies his philosophy, that a simple how are you Coming from the heart can really change everything. Here is my conversation with David Beanie. I just wanted to also ask you just how you're doing today. You know, I didn't even ask, get to ask you that yet. I'm, I'm good today, yeah. I'm, I'm, so I'm in the heart of London. I'm physically meeting people again, and it's great to be... Uh, London's virtually back to, back to normal. Um, so it, it's great to see. But yeah, so I'm good. How are you today? I'm doing good. Yeah, I started the day a little bit, maybe a bit anxious is the word. And, you know, I, I want to be honest and say that, you know, it's it's so easy to say, oh, I'm just I'm fine. You know, I'm fine. But uh, yeah, I was a little bit anxious. But, you know, now I'm feeling quite relaxed. I'm very happy to be on this interview with you and have this conversation. And I just, you know, use some of the tools that I have in my little toolbox, which is, you know, you're only... You're only doing what you're doing right now. So, you know, I'm, that's, that's, that's what I'm doing, taking things one step at a time. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I asked you to come on because, as, as you know, our common friend Steve, a shout out to Steve, Steve is so great, put us in contact and told me about you. And I really wanted to know how it all began. How did you begin breaking the silence and your story around that? Okay, a little bit about me. I, I spent 36 years working in magazines and newspapers, not as a journalist on the commercial side of things, having a fairly successful, very normal career. But throughout that 36 years, I had a big secret, a really, really big secret. And, and, and what was my secret? My secret was I was battling in private with my mental health. 
Even I'm surprised when I look back at my life that nobody knew about it at all. Absolutely nobody. And I'm quite embarrassed to admit that that includes my ex-wife of 28 years. Had no idea. My friends down the pub had no idea. And certainly nobody I worked with knew about my constant battles with, with panic attacks and anxiety. But on the 16th of May 2016, my, my life changed forever when I outed myself and I spoke for the very first time about my mental health. And it's changed my life. It really has changed my life. When I first shared my story, it resonated with more people and at a deeper level than anything I've ever done in my life before. However, uh, people would come up to me and say to me things like, I would never share with my employer my true mental health because I think it would damage my career prospects. And the more and more people I spoke to, the more people shared with me that in short, they didn't trust their employers when it came to mental health. So I made a big decision back at the beginning of 2017 that where I wanted to focus my energy was on helping employers to become kinder. I wanted to help employers to create kinder cultures in their workplaces where every single employee would feel really safe to be honest about their mental health. And it's led me on a hell of a journey, a journey that I feel very proud to do the work that I do. Uh, to give you a flavour of my current work, I work with the Royal Navy in the UK. I'm trying to help our military to create a, get rid of their macho culture to make it easier for our sailors to be honest about their mental health. I'm not political at all, but I've been, I work with the, one of my clients is the Labour Party in the UK and helping them to create a kinder culture within their own political party. And I'm lucky enough to work with some of the biggest brands in the world, in, in Google, uh, with Samsung, with, with HSBC, with McDonald's, and feel very, very lucky to do the work that I do. And, and just a few more things, M, uh, relevant to, to me. I spent almost 36 years doing everything possible in my corporate career, avoiding public speaking because of my battles with panic attacks. And I now probably, on average, deliver one talk um, every single day. So not surprisingly, the first time I think I was ever delivering a, a, a talk at a conference about five years ago, um, somebody put their hand up and said, uh, David, can I ask you a question? If you spent all those years avoiding public speaking, how are you going to get through our sessions now without having a panic attack? And I can remember almost having a panic attack at the question because it was a really good question. And from memory, I said two things. Firstly, I can't promise people that I won't have a panic attack because I still suffer them. I can't promise you today, Em, that during this podcast, I won't have them because I still have them. But I also said on that day that there's a phrase that we associate with mental health, that it's okay not to be okay. And maybe for the first time in my life, five years ago, I finally accepted, do you know what? It really is okay not to be okay. And I'm finally comfortable being me. So is that how I get through these sessions without a panic attack? Because I think it's okay not to be okay. It helps a bit, but it's not the main reason. Something else also happened a few years ago, Em, that, that helps me. And, and I realise these days that you inspire people by sharing vulnerability. It used to be regarded as weakness to talk about battles with depression or, or, or anxiety or, or mental health. But these days, it takes courage um, to talk about it. But it actually gives other people permission around you to talk about their vulnerabilities too. So I have realised from many experiences I've had in recent years that 
you do inspire people when you share vulnerability. So does that is that the reason I get through this session? Again, it helps a bit. It's not the main reason. I've tried to find a cure to my panic attacks for 40 years. And cure is a really good word to use because I, I've come to the conclusion I'll never be cured. I had my last panic attack about three hours ago. They never go away. But I think I've realised what happens these days. Just when the demons are about to return, just when I feel my chest starting to tighten, I say to myself, sod it, just have one. Show the world what a panic attack looks like for David Beanie. I think the irony is the moment I give myself permission to have one, I reduce the chances of them happening. I've spent most of my life panicking about my panic attacks, getting anxious about my anxiety. I've always been very hard on myself. In our careers, we talk about raising the bar. It's always about raising the bar. Well, guess what I've done, Em? I've lowered my bar. I haven't lowered my standards. I haven't lowered my aspirations. I've just lowered the pressure I put on myself every day. I think I've discovered, Em, what they call the true value of self-compassion, which is about being kinder to yourself. And if there's one thing I love everyone to take away from my work as an individual, it's to find a way to become kinder to yourself because my discovery of self-compassion has had a really positive impact on, on my mental health overall. Hopefully, Em, that gives you a flavour of me and why I ended up starting the work that I do. But, but great question to kick us off today. Thank you so much for your answer because it's just so full of passion and love and understanding and acceptance. I mean, it's really, really a great journey that you've been on. And so, like you were saying, it takes so much courage to be vulnerable and to come out and be honest, especially when you've been hiding something for 30 years. That's a really long time. And to be like, that's that's enough. You know, it makes me think a little bit. Um, you must have seen that TED talk, the Brené Brown's TED talk about vulnerability and how vulnerability is perceived as weakness, but actually vulnerability is strength. And I love that. And, and, and that's definitely something that we try to do as well. This idea of like when someone is inspiring by doing inspiring things or, you know, living their true selves or living with their passions, then that inspires other people. And that creates a change in culture and, and it creates a movement. And we really need that right now. So thank you so much for living your truth, you know, because that's so important. And thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Of course. And, um, and so then when you came out and decided to work with employers back in 2017, and so I'm guessing that's when you started breaking the silence what did you exactly do and what, you know, what were you hoping to achieve? In the early days, Em, I just started telling my own story about mental health. And I wasn't even sure if I'd be able to do that because of my battle with panic attacks. But after a few months, I, I realized it wasn't enough. Too many people were still sharing with me that they would never be open about their own mental health because, as I said earlier, they didn't trust their employers. So I realized that my work where I needed to focus energy was, was around culture. And I'd spent a lot of time in my own uh, media career trying to create cultures where, where people flourished. And I suddenly realized that um, I needed to wear three different hats to be successful. And it was like I'd been doing this work or training all of my life to do what I now do. Now, to make sense of those three hats, yes, I've got my own mental health story. So I can talk to audiences about what it's like to suffer in silence. I was also really 
delighted in that about 12 years ago now, I chose to train as a mental health therapist. So I, I equally could go into organizations with the credibility of being a, a mental health therapist. Um, but thirdly, um, I've also, as I just said, got lots of experience around what businesses need to do to create cultures where people feel safe to be honest about their mental health. But being quite blunt with you today, I work with some amazing organisations who've got world-class resource available when it comes to mental health, but they haven't addressed their culture. And if you don't address culture, you could have the very best resource, but no one's going to use it because they'll be too scared to open up and talk about, about their mental health. What I've also, where I think I've been fortunate to have some good success as well, many businesses, they don't connect their well-being strategy with the performance of the whole um, organization. But mental health and well-being is not a fluffy subject. When you create a kinder culture in a workplace, um, everybody wins. Employees win because we all want to work for a kind employer and have a kind boss. But the business wins as well because your best people are less likely to leave, less people go off sick, and you drive energy and engagement through the organization. So hopefully by talking the right language to lots of businesses, I was able to connect for them their well-being strategy, but alongside the, the overall energy and performance of the organization as well. It took a while, Em. In the early days, it was hard work to get into businesses to talk to them about culture. But as the years have gone by, I've got more and more evidence in my own mind that I'm very clear about what businesses need to do to make a difference in this space and to make it easier for every employee to be really honest about their mental health. Okay, wow, that's super cool. And I'm very curious about when you talk about the really working with companies to change the culture, how does exactly does that look like? Do you speak to the employers? Do you do workshops? Uh, is it through talks with uh, everybody? Like, I'm, I'm quite curious of how does that shift in the company happen? Because it is, it is hard work, you know, like culture is so ingrained. So, yeah, I'm kind of curious about that. Um, work, working with many diverse organizations has given me a real insight into what works and what doesn't work. And as I sort of alluded to just now, I think I'm very clear now into what organizations need to do. And... Before I even share this with you, a lot of this stuff is not rocket science, but I'll, I'll share it with you anyway. Um, because we're talking about culture, culture comes top down. So you have to get the tone set from the very, very top of the organization. You won't be surprised to know, Em, that there's still many organizations and businesses that are just ticking a box when it comes to mental health. They don't really care about their people. But the great news is, is that more and more organizations are setting the tone from the very top. And that's where I see the biggest impact. Um, I'll give you an example of a, a business a couple of years ago at the very start of this uh, pandemic. They're a business that employs a lot of young people. They're very much a sales uh, organization. And their CEO said right at the start of the pandemic, he sent a video out to all of his staff that went a little bit like this. At the moment... I don't care about sales. My priority is your well-being and the well-being of you and your families. He said, my priority over the next um, couple of years is going to be to make sure we've still got a great business at the end of it. And he said, I'm going to say it again now. At the moment, I don't care about sales. 
I care about the well-being of my staff and the well-being of your families. Well, guess what happened then? Sales went up. They've had a fabulous couple of years because their people were so inspired by the authenticity of the CEO who truly was putting their well-being first. So the tone has to come from the very top. And ideally, staff need to see on a very regular basis evidence that the senior leaders are role modelling behaviour that shows that well-being is a priority over possibly the sales targets and sales numbers, etc. So that's one thing. Secondly, every manager, every people manager in every organisation also plays a part in culture. You can work for a, a brilliant business with a great culture, but if your boss doesn't get it, you don't get that experience. Often what you think of your manager is what you think of the organisation. Now, forgive my language here, Em, but we've all had a shite boss in our times. We know what that feels like. They can mess up your life for a while. They never get the best out of you. And you generally end up looking to move on. I think the best insight I've had in recent years, I I won't name them, but they are one of the biggest banks in the world with a great reputation for employee well-being. But they got a very big shock. They carried out this huge survey of 76,000 staff. They asked them lots of questions around well-being, but one of the questions was a very black and white question. It simply said, do we care about you, yes or no? And they put that question in because they thought most staff would say yes, because they had this great reputation. But 38,000 staff ticked the box to say no. 50% of their workforce said, you don't care about me. Now, they were mortified, but fortunately, they're brilliant with their data analytics. So they drilled into the data and they went looking for a common denominator. And it won't surprise you, Em, they found it straight away. And the common denominator was your boss. They then looked further into the data to see what does a manager do or not do to make people think we don't care about them. And what came out of that was really basic stuff. But I like basic stuff because it's often quite fixable. And number one was in your one-to-one interactions, those managers always talked about work, customers, sales, KPIs, projects, as opposed to saying, how are you? How are you doing? And asking from here. Now, I've seen it so evidence-based in recent years that where we start conversations at work with how are you, and we mean it, that is the simplest and easiest way to make people feel valued and cared for. So I often these days talk about the power of how are you. So going back to your question, a huge part of my work these days is the, the training of people managers on the power of how are you. Many organisations now, if they've got like a leadership development programme, they're having this as one of the modules on their programme, realising these days it's a real essential skill to make people feel cared and valued um, if you're going to get the very best out of your people to run a business. Naturally, other things I go on to do um, within my my workshops, I talk about the power of vulnerability again and, and how we inspire people. And I also talk about we've got to use the right language in the workplace to create cultures around this. But, but just going back to the role of the manager, naturally the world has changed in the last couple of years. And you can imagine how many managers have said to me, but David, now we're doing so much work virtually. Now we're doing so much on Teams and Zoom and, and so on. It's really difficult to keep an eye on my people. I accept that to some degree, Em. 
but we've just now got to think about the way we we manage people separately and in the last two years by working on on video cameras into people's homes i've met more children i've met more cats and dogs i've met more partners than in the previous 30 odd years and why is that important it's important because i've had real human connection with people when you connect with people on a more humanistic level again everybody wins we all want to work for people who we feel really understand and get us and the business wins as well because you get more energy from those people a great boss of mine once said to me many years ago david how's sally's dog and i started laughing and my boss said what's funny about that and i said well why would i ask sally about her dog when i didn't even know sally had a dog and my boss didn't even smile and said to me, but David, you should know Sally's got a dog because her dog is her life. Next time you see Sally, ask her about her dog. So I did do. And when I look back at my relationship with Sally, she became a real advocate of mine. She became a real fantastic colleague. Uh, but it only really changed for the better the day I asked her about her dog. Because at that stage, we just connected and she realised I cared about her as a human being. So just, just to go back and summarise what I've been saying. My, my work these days principally works top-down through organisations because that's where culture sits. It's very much around um, management workshops, uh, which aren't like two, three, four days in, in length. They're, they're normally about only, only two, three hours, but I find that uh, this stuff is simple. So you, you don't need to, um, to spend too long on trying to get across to someone the importance of saying, how are you? But equally, I do talks that touch everyone in the organisation because it's important that everyone hears, hears the same messaging. So hopefully, again, and that just gives you a flavour of the sort of work that I do. Yeah, no, definitely. It gives me a, a really great idea around the work that you do. And I think that's so powerful because, yeah, like there's so much that you said that I really, really enjoyed because it is really simple and and yet it can change everything about how you experience work and also the productivity of a business. Like it's just kind of beneficial on all sides. And it's one of those things where how have we not really realized <laughs> that this could be completely world changing, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's only been in the last maybe, you know, a couple of years where this has become a real serious topic where we're even talking about mental health in the workplace and talking about mental health as being something that we should be all taken care of you know so I feel like we live in a really special time at the moment as well where where these conversations can be had and where organizations are interested because it's beneficial for them it's beneficial for their staff it's beneficial on so many levels so yeah that's that's yeah it's so interesting and so great and yeah, I really appreciate uh, you sharing that with me and also that you're, you're doing it. That's, that's so great. And uh, if you were to choose, what, what would be one of the most important things to know about the work that you do? What, what would that be? I still think mental health starts with ourselves. I think if we can understand our own mental health, that it helps us to understand the mental health of others. So when I talked to you earlier on about my discovery of self-compassion, to be consistent with what I said earlier, we've got to find ways to become kinder to ourselves. Uh, we're, we're all very hard on ourselves. We set ourselves unrealistic goals. These, these are tough times to live through. One of the questions I'm asked very, very regularly, Em, is 
how many of us in reality will have some degree of mental health challenge in any given year? And I've been answering that question the same for years. Um, it's every single one of us. Every single one of us has days when we've got challenges going on up here with our mental health. The first time I ever put a slide deck together on mental health, I sent it out to um, some friends and asked them for feedback on my slides. And they all came back and said exactly the same thing. They all came back to me and said, um, I like your slides, but you've got no numbers in them. And they said to me, surely if you're doing awareness training, people like to read statistics. And I can remember saying, take this in the right spirit, but most statistics I read about mental health are bullshit. I said, no one knew about me for 30 odd years. You know, how many more people are out there like me that we don't know about? And do you know what, Em? I think I've been proved right. I'm not exaggerating when I share with you at least a thousand people have contacted me, at least a thousand, to share with me that they suffer in silence with their mental health, not just from their work colleagues, from their families as well. Many of them men, many of them quite senior in their, in their jobs. So I've never changed my view that um, I think everyone has, has, has days when their mental health is challenged. In the UK, the most commonly used statistic around mental health is one in four. I see it written all the time by the great mental health charities. I think statistics like that don't help. I think you see four people together and you can't help but think, if it's one in four, well, I wonder which one of those four it is. Um, it's not one in four, it's one in one. And the reason why we need to change our thinking to one in one, we need to normalise this topic. We want to get to the stage where everyone in our lives, friends, family, work colleagues, accepts that they've got mental health in the same way they've got physical health. Because once we do that, we start to make it easier for everyone to say, do you know what, I'm not okay today. I'm, you know, I'm feeling a bit anxious, I'm feeling a bit down today, and that's okay. And the more we talk about it, the actual healthier society becomes because when you hold on to things for too long, they get heavier and heavier and heavier. Speaking as a therapist, most of my clients are in therapy because they, they haven't dealt with things, sometimes for very good reasons. So the more we can get people talking, the more we can get people opening up and saying, yeah, I'm not great today, the healthier society becomes. And we go a long way to trying to get rid of this stigma um, about talking about mental health. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, this makes me think of so many things because we talk about, you were saying like physical health and mental health, and no one really questions if you say, oh, I've got a bit of a cold today and just stay in bed. But, but then if you were to say, oh, I'm just feeling a bit depressed, <laughs> I'm going to stay in bed, that doesn't seem like it's an acceptable thing to do, which is, you know, ridiculous. But the point is that, um, we just see physical health to be this thing that we can work with that, but mental health, we can't even think about that in any way. My aspiration, M, and it probably won't be achieved in my lifetime, is that we can talk about mental health in, in the same way we talk about physical health. At the moment, they are, they are poles apart. And I'll give you two examples. Everybody knows Google Images very well. So let me use an example using Google Images. M, if you typed into Google Images today, mental health, what sort of imagery do you think would come up? Can you share with me what, what imagery do you think comes up for mental health? Yeah, actually, I think it would be someone looking sad. <laughs> yep. Most of the imagery, M, is negative of people looking sad, people with their heads in their hands. 
In contrast, then, if we typed into Google Images physical health, what sort of imagery do you think comes up? Yeah, I think it's something like people looking strong and fit and going to the gym and things. <laughs> yeah, I think the last time I looked at him, I saw Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime. I saw Usain Bolt. I saw Cristiano Ronaldo. Why? Why, when we think about physical health, is it all positive thoughts? And when we think about mental health, it's all doom and gloom. There's just one example about why people perhaps don't want to associate with mental health, because it's just seen as, as negative. Sadly, some people don't have great physical health, but they have brilliant minds. So I'll give you one more example. I went through my mobile phone the other day, and I wanted to count how many of my friends have used the services of a personal trainer. And I counted 11. Em, I'm going to ask you a question. How would I know that? How would I know that I've got 11 friends who've used a personal trainer? How would I know? I have no idea. Would they just tell you? It's because they don't shut up about it. They're very proud of it. They put it on social media. Um, they, they tell me. the reason. And by the way, if anyone listening to this is using a personal trainer, fantastic that you're investing in your, in your health. The point I'm about to make, I wonder how many of my friends, M, are currently seeing a personal trainer for the mind. In other words, a mental health counsellor. I wouldn't know, would I? Because they probably wouldn't talk about it. So the point I'm saying here today, when we get professional help for our physical health, we tell everybody. When we, when we decide to get professional help for, for our mind, we're not likely to talk about it because we're a bit embarrassed. We've just got to make it uh, more acceptable for people to be more honest about their mental well-being in the same way we talk about our physical health. But we've got a very, very long way to go, Em. But hopefully... Podcasts like this can only help um, by helping people to, to know it really is okay not to be okay. Yeah, of course, I really hope so too. And it's really the work that you're doing. I mean, breaking the silence makes so much sense as a name because it's really like you're breaking the stigma around mental health, which is, at the end of the day, even the, the dichotomy between mental and physical health is a bit silly because they're also linked. If you're feeling physically unwell, you're also feeling kind of sad. And if you're feeling kind of sad, you might not have that much energy, you know? So it's, it's one of those things. Em, it's no coincidence that every government in the world, even during the strictest rules of lockdown, allowed us out for physical exercise because they recognize the link between your physical exercise and, and your mental well-being. So you, you are so right with what you just said just now. They are very, very closely aligned which is why if anyone's listening to this podcast and you're not currently getting any exercise at all, you should be getting something, even if it's just going for a nice walk. We all need physical exercise to look after our mental well-being. Yeah, yeah, it's really important. And it's just those things, but we, we like to separate these things and put them into boxes. And some boxes are okay and some boxes are not okay. So we can't talk about those. And so it's, it's just really great that there's people like you that are coming out and being honest about their own journeys and being vulnerable with that. And then also seeking to change, you know, the, the culture. So um, in the work that you've done, What's the kind of impact that you've seen of the, in the work that you have been doing for the last five years? Again, what I will honestly say is the link between businesses that have created a, a kinder culture where staff feel more valued and the performance of that business. There's a definite link between the two. Um, but you can imagine the most humbling sort of feedback I get is when I've encouraged people to open up for the first time in their lives about their mental health. And 
I honestly don't know a situation where anybody has regretted coming out and being more honest about their mental health. I was only sharing with somebody this morning, working with the military last year, I finished a talk one day, and at the end of the talk, there was this one man left sitting in his chair um, with his head in his hands, and everyone else had gone up, had left the room. And I went up to him and said, um, are you okay? And he said no. And at this point, he started to cry like a baby. And he was a very big, strong, six foot, you know, four inch man. And uh, he was clearly not in a good place at all. And he shared with me that he'd been thinking about taking his own life for the last three months. But he said he wasn't even good enough to do that. Um, we, I, I listened to him for a while and then I managed to get, I said, look, you're not leaving there. Let me get someone. And uh, we immediately got support in place for him. Me and that other person who supported him, we received a lovely email only a few weeks ago from this guy saying, thank you so much. You, you saved my life. Um, I was, you know, it was only a matter of time before um, I took my own life. And he's a father and he's, he's, a, he's a husband. And, um, and he's now a, he's left the military. He's a long distance lorry driver. And he's never been so happy in his life. So it's so humbling for me um, to know that, yes, I am helping businesses and I'm helping them to be more successful in terms of their performance. But um, there are far more people than we realize sitting around us every day who are suffering in complete silence with their mental health. And um, when I first came out myself, even friends I'd known for 20 years said to me, David, why didn't you talk to me about this 20 years ago? Because I suffer the same. And I, even I get still surprised to this day, the people that come up to me to say, thank you, um, you've just told my story that I've never been brave enough to tell, who uh, have been struggling because they feel they can't talk about it. The stigma of mental health then is the wall of silence. There has been some progress made globally in recent years on this topic, but we've still got such a long way to go, such a long way to go to, to normalise this topic and, and, and make people feel safe, to be honest. Uh, a long way to go. Yeah, absolutely. There's a long, long way to go. And I mean, it just feels like the beginning of the journey, like we were talking a little bit about earlier, how it's only been a couple of years where this subject has even started to become something we talk about. And now there are people talking about it people are starting to understand the benefit of talking about it and 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 also there's more research being done as well about the subject and it's just really kind of booming but it is just the beginning so what i also was thinking about was how do you see the future for the work that you do and the fields and if you were to imagine a little bit what would it look like great question and i, I wish i had all the answers to that em it will go back again from the very top of organisations, the tone being set from there and working its way downwards through the organisation. I would like to see um, every board meeting and every senior leadership meeting starting with first thing on the agenda is nothing about the business. You, you go around the table, whether in person or virtually, and you say to people, how are you? How, how are you doing? And you're not allowed to talk about work. And everyone just checks in and feels they can be really honest with themselves. Uh, and that sort of behavior coming all the way down through the organization. The famous entrepreneur Richard Branson said a, a number of years ago, 
that most businesses uh, put their shareholders first, their customers second, and their own staff third, when in reality, it should be the other way around. You, you put your people first, your employees first, because if you look after your employees and, and you make them feel valued and cared for, they're then going to give their customers an amazing experience. And then if you give your customers an amazing experience, the shareholders are going to be really happy because they're going to make lots of money. But amazingly, here we are in 2022 with so many businesses still putting their shareholders first and they still sit in meetings and they focus on the numbers as opposed to focusing on the well-being of the people. If I was a, a shareholder of a business and I was invited to a board meeting, when, when the finance director got the numbers out, I would say, no, I'm not interested in the numbers. What I'm interested in is the morale of our people. Do our people in this organisation feel valued and cared for? Uh, and do they believe we're putting their well-being as a priority? Because if we're getting that bit right, I know as a shareholder that when I'm back here next year, we're going to have a brilliant year in this business. So in, in some ways, I guess we need to train the shareholders to ask the right questions. Don't get me wrong, Em. Some businesses are waking up to this. But we, we've, I'll say it again, we, we've got a long way to go. Um, so, yeah, the future is... Um, when you go to work, you know that when you go to a meeting, someone's going to start that meeting by saying, how are you? Asking from, from the heart and, and it's got to be authentic and they've got to be prepared to listen. And then you get into the business and the work stuff. Simple thing to do. And we are making progress, but a long way to go. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I love, I, I really love that way of flipping the script on its heads because it makes so much sense. And uh, it's just like you were saying about everything that you do and the work that you do. It's really kind of simple tweaks. I'll give you a really simple story that is very relevant to the world we work in now. As I said to you earlier, many leaders and managers are saying, David, it's really difficult to keep an eye on my people these days because I run a global team and all of our meetings are virtual and I very rarely meet people in person. So how am I expected to keep an eye on my people's well-being? Let, let, let me tell you a, a true story, Em. Um, about two weeks ago, I was running a webinar for 100 people in many different countries. And at the end of the webinar, the person who booked me to do this talk said to me, um, how did it go? And I said, I think it went very well. The engagement seemed very high. And I said, just out of interest, as a duty of care, there was three people in that session I'm a little bit worried about, and I think you just need to check that they're okay. And this person said to me, hang on a minute, David, you've just run a webinar sitting in your own home. She said, I was on the webinar, and of those 100 people, only about 15 people had their camera on. How can you say to me that you're worried about three people on that webinar when you couldn't even see most of them? And you did all the talking for virtually an hour. And I said, it's, it's a, I said I'm, you know, it's quite a simple thing, I said. But at some stage during the webinar, I asked everybody to type in the chat function a number of how they're feeling today on a scale from 1 to 10, with 1 being low and 10 being high. And those three people all scored 1 out of 10. And I quickly made a note of their names. And I just said, globally... We all understand the language of one to ten. And for someone to write one, they're having a pretty bad day. Now, it may be it's nothing, but I think you need to contact them and say, 
David noticed during the session you only scored one out of ten. Can we just check is everything okay? And it's doing simple things like that that took me two minutes in that webinar as a way to check in and see how people are. So we've got to think differently about the way that we, we look after our people these days in this, you know, hopefully post-pandemic time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so effective. That's so incredible. And it's like the way you're explaining it is so simple and so clear. And the, the changes that need to be made are very, very, very simple. And just to say again, so many businesses are complicating this subject around mental health and well-being. It's not about training up lots of mental health first aiders. It's a little more conversation. It's finding a little bit more time to say to someone, how are you? And listening and perhaps sharing a bit more vulnerability. And it's about setting that tone from the top down through an organization. It's as simple as that. But many businesses are complicating it and they don't need to complicate it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the fact that you've not only figured that out, but you're sharing that knowledge with people and with us as well on this podcast, but like through the work and that you do, it really, it sometimes the simplest ideas have really the, the hugest power to change everything. So it's, it's really, truly inspiring to hear you talk about this because it's bringing a lot of ideas as well to my mind of like how how we can make those changes through very, very simple models, really, which can be put in place in two minutes, actually. And so that's that's so cool. And um, so uh, I know we don't have that much time left, but I do want to ask you our famous question, which is we ask all our guests this question. So basically our motto is inspiring people, inspiring people. And so we really consider every single person that we interview to be an inspiring person. So I'd like to turn the question back over and ask you, who inspires you? Oh, what a, what a big question. Um, I, about five or six years ago, I, I sat in on a talk one day by a gentleman called Jeff McDonald. Jeff used to be the global HR director for Unilever. And Jeff shared his story about his challenges of mental health. And he talked about how he, his best friend uh, took their own life. And I sat there with tears rolling down my cheeks. And Jeff is also on a mission to make it possible for every employee in the world to feel safe to talk about mental health. And I, and I sat there that day and I thought, I'm, I'm going to join your crusade. So in terms of the work I do now, Jeff McDonald, uh, ex-global HR director at Unilever, was a real inspiration to me. And he's gone on to become a friend and I, I know him well now. And I know he's a great admirer of my work, and that that means a lot to me as well. But uh, yeah, Jeff certainly inspired me very early on my journey to do the work that I do now. Great, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm gonna look him up as well. That sounds very inspiring. And lastly, I'll just ask you basically where our listeners can find you, whether that's on the internet or elsewhere. You know, it could be off the internet, and also how can people support the work that you do. Probably the best way for people to find me is, is, is on LinkedIn. I'm quite active on LinkedIn and LinkedIn's been very kind to me in helping me to connect with, with thousands of people globally. If people want to uh, look at my, my website, it's breakingthesilence.co.uk. So www.breakingthesilence.co.uk. Or they can email me at davidbeanie at breakingthesilence.co.uk. But, but M, thank you so much for this opportunity today. I can sense you have a real passion for this topic too. And it's been a real pleasure for me to meet you today. I've thoroughly enjoyed this interview. 
So uh, thank you very much indeed for this opportunity. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on and talking so passionately about the work you do. It's it's very moving and very touching and, and so inspiring. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Em. Thank you for listening to the Inspirer podcast. If you like this episode, please subscribe and review our show. It helps us grow our audience. And if you want to know more, check out the article on our website, theinspired.news. And let's stay in touch. Follow us on social media using the handle The Inspired News. This podcast is hosted and produced by The Inspirer, and the music was produced by Robin Nicoli. See you next week.